Throughout my high school years, I was quite a busy student. My wife likes the joke that uh, every possible extracurricular activity I was involved in. And uh, there's some truth to that. After all, I was on the football team, and I was also in the marching band. I did every possible club, every possible group, but of all the activities and extracurriculars I did as a student, the one I loved the most was debating. Anything that involved debating, I did it. Mock trial, mock US government, and my favorite of all, Model United Nations. You all know what Model United Nations is? Some of you all. So let me explain, for those of you who aren't acquainted with this area of nerddom, this very specific uh, nerdy thing to do as a student. In Model UN, uh, schools are assigned a particular country, and they have to learn about that country's history, they have to learn their foreign policy, and then we all come together in a meet or a conference, and we mock the United Nations. We represent the country we've been assigned to, and we solve the world's problems. And then about usually halfway through the conference, a crisis happens. You know, civil war or terrorism or nuclear weapons or something like that. And all these high school students got to figure out what to do. I loved Model United Nations. I loved the problem solving. I loved the debating. I loved learning about history and politics. And let me tell you, I was good at it. I was real good at it. I won all kinds of awards. I represented all kinds of countries from the United Kingdom to China to Nigeria. But my greatest performance ever was my junior year of high school when I was Austria on the Security Council. This is the big leagues. And so I worked hard to learn everything about Austria. And it was tough. The other thing about this particular competition was it was a rematch against a rival from another high school, someone I had faced before. And this person was intense. They were representing Ireland. They knew everything about Irish foreign policy, and they really lived the part. This guy had an Irish accent. He even wore a kilt the entire competition. <laughs> but I was not intimidated. We fought, and we debated, and we conferenced, and we wrote resolutions, and we were fierce with each other about our positions. And by the end of it, I triumphed. I won. I was the victor. I won the Best Delegate Award for that conference. And as I was on the bus home uh, that next day, I noticed something had changed within me. There was this feeling welling up inside. It was a passion. Or was it anger? My heart was tense within me. I was more aggressive, more argumentative, more defensive. And this feeling was intoxicating. I loved it. It made me feel so good. But I could also feel it eating me up inside. It hurt, and I wanted more of it. Now, if you've ever been in an argument with someone or ever been debating with someone, you know this feeling. You could probably relate to it. Words have power. And we can use words in all kinds of ways. Words make us feel powerful. Words can inspire, encourage, or inform. 
But words can also be used as weapons. Words can create division and strife. And the powerful feelings that we have when we debate, they quickly become anger and fear. We see this clearly in our world today. It's not hard. Just turn on the TV, open up the news on your computer. We live in a fiercely divided world. And in our culture, words are the main weapons we use against each other, the main evidence of our polarization. So here's my question for this morning. What does it mean to be the church in a divided culture? How can Christians be faithful witnesses to our Lord Jesus Christ in a polarized world? We get an answer to these questions in our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 22. There we see two ways of being in a divided world. One way, the easy way, leads to death. But the other way, the difficult way, leads to life. If you have your Bible with you, open it up to Matthew 22. You can use the Pew Bible in front of you. We want to zero in on what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is in a debate of his own. He is in a war of words, a quite fierce one, actually. And it began the chapter before, chapter 21. See, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He chases the money changers out of the temple, and that's when it all begins. You see these different groups of Jewish leaders coming to Jesus and questioning him. Chapter 21, verse 23 the chief priests and the elders come to Jesus and they ask him, where do you get your authority from? And after he deals with them, chapter 22, verse 23, the Sadducees grill Jesus. They want to know what he thinks about marriage and the resurrection of the dead. And finally, it brings us to our reading, verse 34. The Pharisees come and they ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, each of these groups, these groups of Jewish leaders, they're political parties, they're theological parties. Each has their own understanding of the law, of how to interpret it, of how to think about God. And these groups disagree about a lot, but there is one thing they all agree about. They don't like Jesus, and they want him out of town. They don't like his followers, they don't like what he teaches, they want to get rid of him. This last group in particular is really important. The Pharisees, they're an interesting case. They are the conservatives. They believe in the authority of Scripture and its literal interpretation. They want to apply it to daily life. Of all the division in first century Judaism, of all the groups, Jesus has the most in common with the Pharisees. That's probably why they fought so fiercely. Not because they were different, but because they agreed on so much. So let's look at this question in detail. Verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, at first glance, this seems like an honest question. Torah, after all, has 613 different commandments. It would be helpful to know which one is the most important. But Matthew gives us a hint. This is a trap. They're trying to ensnare Jesus. 
Because see, the Pharisees believe that every word of Scripture, each 613 commandment, is equally important. And that if you disobey one of them, you might as well have disobeyed all of them. The Pharisees don't want to know what Jesus thinks about the law. The Pharisees want to know if he is one of them or not. They want to draw clear lines between us and them. And if Jesus fails to give the right answer, now they have a reason to kick him out, to get rid of him. This is the first way, the way of the Pharisee. The Pharisees appear to be pious people. They appear to be people who care about the truth. But in reality, all the Pharisees really care about is winning. The Pharisees love themselves. They believe themselves to be superior to Jesus. And the only way to maintain superiority is to divide up the world. Us. Them. Good guys. Bad guys. The way of the Pharisee is so tempting. We're all tempted to justify ourselves, to proclaim to the world how right we are. But this way, victory at all costs, my way or the highway, the way of the Pharisees leads to death. This way of being only divides the world worse than it already is. It stokes the flames of fear and anger. And the way of the Pharisee will slowly kill you. It will eat you up on the inside. So, how does Jesus respond to this trap? Look with me at verse 37. Jesus gives a familiar answer to anyone who's ever been in Sunday school. But it's quite astonishing if you pay attention. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, has Jesus fallen into the trap? Has he elevated two commandments over the rest of the law? What exactly is Jesus getting at here? Well, he's linking together two important commandments from the Old Testament. One from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. The other one from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus didn't make this up. Most devout Jews would have been familiar with this. They would have recited it in the morning and in the evening every day. The new thing, the innovation here is that last sentence. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Depend here literally means hang. It's the same word you'd use if you wanted to hang a picture on the wall or hang up a door by its hinges. Jesus is saying these two commandments are not just a summary of the law. They are the very purpose and foundation of the law. They are what the law points to. Without love of God and love of neighbor, there is no law. The door falls off its hinges. The picture falls off the wall. Essentially, Jesus is refocusing the whole of the law on love. And love is not a general, mushy kind of feeling. It is a concrete and practical love towards God and neighbor. See, we need to read the greatest commandment with the new commandment that Jesus gives in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. 
so you must love one another. No greater love has someone than this than lays down his life for his friends. Jesus doesn't just tell us to love. He gives us an embodied example of love. He laid down his life for us. This is the second way, the way of Jesus, the way of love. The way of love gives life to the world, but this is a difficult way. It requires us to give of ourselves for the sake of the other. But this love, the way of Jesus, it's the only thing that will heal the divisions in our world. Because love overcomes anger and fear. Love reconciles opposing groups together. Love doesn't care about victory. Love cares about the other and gives themselves for the sake of the other. This kind of love is exactly what our polarized and divided culture needs. Can you imagine the kind of Christian witness it would be if we loved this way? So why don't we do it? Why don't we follow the way of Jesus and love like he loved? Why do we Christians choose the way of the Pharisee rather than the way of Jesus? Why do we divide up the world into good guys and bad guys, and the people for us and people against us? Why do we insist on defending ourselves and seek victory at all costs, even at the cost of love? Well, Jesus explains why if you keep reading Matthew 22. You can't stop at the love commandment. Look with me at verse 42. Now the tables are turned. Jesus is the one who has been questioned. Now Jesus asks the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus is kind of setting a trap of his own, but this trap is not intended to ensnare. It's intended to reveal. What do you think about the Christ? For Jesus, this is the most consequential question of the world. This question reveals the real division in this world between those who believe Jesus and those who don't. Between those who love the son of David and David's Lord. Those who acknowledge the king of Israel and the king of the whole world. Those who believe and trust in Jesus and walk in his way of love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Friends, here's the gospel. No matter how much you try, no matter how much effort you extinguish you cannot love God and neighbor by yourself. Why? Because we love ourselves too much. In our attempts to be good people, we don't recognize that we are polluted by self-love. We are sinners. We were born enemies of God and neighbor. But God did not leave us there. He sent his son Jesus to take on the effects of our self-love, to crucify it in his flesh, and then Jesus resurrected us by the Holy Spirit and by water, and he calls us to love God and love neighbor. 
as the Protestant reformer said so well, faith precedes love. It is faith that comes first, then love. And if we get that order reversed, we inevitably are ensnared by our self-love. But when we trust in Jesus, when we have faith in him and his love for us, then all things are possible. Then all things are made new. Then and only then can the church participate in the healing of the world God has called us to. We love because he first loved us. Make no mistake, church, we are called to be part of God's reconciliation in the divided world. St. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are called to the ministry of reconciliation. So what does it mean to be the church in a divided culture? How can Christians be faithful witnesses to our Lord Jesus Christ in a polarized world? Well, we first have to answer this question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Why do we choose the way of the Pharisee? Defending ourselves, dividing the world up into good guys and bad guys, seeking victory at all costs, even the cost of love? Well, it's the same reason I loved debate in high school. It's the same reasons that feeling I felt after I won that Model UN competition. We like the way it makes us feel. The way of the Pharisee makes us feel empowered, in control. But the way of Jesus makes us vulnerable, weak. When we use words as weapons, it makes us feel safe. When we divide up the world, it helps us feel superior to other people. And if we have an enemy to oppose, well, it's really easy to overlook our own faults because it's that guy's problem. That person, they're the bad guy. That feeling I felt on that bus ride, I was feeling self-love. I was beginning to trust myself, my abilities, my intelligence, my problem-solving, the rightness of my cause. That's when that intoxicating feeling welled up inside of me. And after that, victory at all costs became the most important thing that's when I followed the way of the Pharisee, when I failed to trust Jesus. Listen, our failure to love results from a failure to believe. We are divided in this world because we trust other things, other people, not our Lord Jesus. And friends, this division is not new. Despite what pundits and prophets might say, we are not more divided than we'd ever have been. We may have forgotten about our divisions, but this division has always been there. It's right there in our reading from 1 Corinthians. That letter is all about Christian division, fighting amongst themselves, quarreling. So don't be tempted to long for some time in the past when we were more united, when we weren't divided. One thing has changed, though. If you look at history, if you look at the past few years, particularly in the West, belief in Jesus has decreased. Faith in the gospel has disappeared. 
But it's not just for atheists and religious nuns. It's for every Christian who trusts other things than Jesus, who trusts themselves more than our Lord and King. Our fear and anger has caused us to trust the way of the Pharisee. And so we shouldn't be surprised if there's no love in our divided world, if Christians fail to love God and love neighbor. Love is the fruit of faith. So what would it look like if Christians really trusted in Jesus? What would happen in our divided world if we loved God and loved neighbor because he loved us? What if Christians were known as people who loved their enemies? We get a reminder of this every week in our liturgy. That's why we start our liturgy with the summary of the law. We proclaim the love of God, the love of neighbor. This is a standard, a very high standard that we are all held to. Jesus doesn't relax the law, but it is also a commandment that each one of us has broken every day. How do you respond? Try harder. You can do better. Better luck next time. No, that's not how people of faith respond. We respond the only way that we can. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Jesus didn't win. Jesus didn't defend himself. Jesus didn't fight for his rights. Jesus gave his life for the sake of the world. He gave his life to his enemies. And it is after Jesus loved till the very end that he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. It was after Jesus gave his life that the world was reconciled to God. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. May God give us the grace to trust, to believe, and to love as he has called us to love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.